morning. First of all, you guys didn't get the email about the salmon shirts? Like, we were all supposed to wear matching. I, I, I don't know how that happened, but somehow it did, and it's pretty cool. Um, so my name is Ben. For those of you that might not know, I'm the associate pastor here. I'm blessed to be able to be the associate pastor here at Real Life. And if you're joining us for the first time, this is going to be part three of our One Vision series. The series is, is on the book of Revelation. Um, so last week was Mother's Day. And what, what's kind of ironic is that the last time I preached from the book of Revelation was last year on Mother's Day. I know. That's the kind of person that I am. <laughs> but believe it or not, it did actually fit the topic. We were talking about God's design for women, and it was a, a message about equity. It was a message about how things were at creation, how things will be in the new creation. So it did actually fit. Um, what was also interesting about that message is that I, I had to preach it with an interpreter because Pastor Nestor and me had been going back and forth, and, and we actually did a combined service down in Palmarcito. So that's our partnership church that we have now here at Real Life. So we had worked together, and he wanted his people to hear that same message. So I had the opportunity to preach that sermon with an interpreter for them to live stream down there. Um, and it wasn't until we had our Zoom meeting with Nestor and the interpreter and talked about the content of my message that I paused just a little bit. Because I was, I was reading from the text, I was reading from Revelation, and then all of a sudden I hear from the interpreter, apocalypsis. And I thought, well, that, that kind of sounds a little bit too much like apocalypse. So it's Mother's Day, and I'm, I'm, I'm preaching a sermon on Mother's Day. You know, all the moms have their roses in their hands, and all the kids are dressed up for Mother's Day. And then as I'm preaching, you just hear, and now turn to the book of the apocalypse. And everyone held the roses really tight and clutched their pearls, and then we just went for it. So that's kind of how a series like this, is, it, it can feel. It can feel a little tense. It can feel a little bit like, all right, well, we're, we're, we're doing a whole series on a book that can be kind of confusing and at times can be kind of scary. Um, but there's a reason for this series. There really is. Um, there's a reason to spend time in the book of Revelation. We're, we're seeking to gain a deeper understanding that, that goes beyond the fractured, that goes beyond the, the often fictionalized view of scripture. So we can clearly see that, like Pastor Rich said last week, and like he said at the beginning of the series, that this is actually an invitation for us as the church to embrace both the burdens and the blessings of being the church and living in the newness of his kingdom. So our text from this morning is going to be on the screen, and it's starting in Revelation 7. It's verses 1 through 3, and then verses 9 through 17. So I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through as we, as we begin. It says this, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorched heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd." He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, may your word continue to be a lamp at our feet and continue to light the path before us. May we not only hide your words in our hearts, but allow your words to soften us, to shape us, to send us in the name of Jesus. It's in that name we pray. Amen. So like I said, last week, Pastor Rich, he, he preached on worship. He preached on what worship looks like based on the text in Revelation. So he talked about the dangers of having someone or something else in the center of our worship. We talked about, in the sermon and in the devotional last week, we talked about what it looks like to be consumed by consumerism as the church and how our vision of worship can often be blurred by these, these appetites that we get by our consumption of the world. We continue to learn how revelation is not just a, wor- a warning for the world, but it's an invitation for us to let go of those appetites, to allow ourselves to be shaped into the new creation that Jesus is actually establishing today. So then we skip, we kind of skip chapter 6 to get to chapter 7. Um, chapter 6 of Revelation is where these seals begin to be opened these seals of judgment on the churches. And, and, and John uses very creative imagery in chapter 6. He's using the same imagery that was often used in the Old Testament in the prophets. Uh, it, it's to paint a picture of how the power of Jesus will ultimately overcome the powers of the world. Now, we don't, we don't really have a lot of time to go into that, but it's the disarming of the old to usher in the new. And if you do want to work through chapter 6 of Revelation... Just like any text in Revelation, we want, it, we want you to use caution. We want you to carefully look at the, the historical content. We want you to look at the context so that way some of that imagery will make more sense when it comes to what it means for the kingdom of God. So anyways, on to chapter 7. So like I said, so chapter 7 is kind of sandwiched between two different chapters of judgment. And it's this, this interesting, beautiful picture of hope and salvation All this imagery is of people united around the throne in worship, all together as one, worshiping and praising Jesus as one people. It kind of gives us a glimpse of the oneness that we'll experience once we see the full newness of the kingdom of God. So the main takeaway for our text this morning is this, that a church that is one is a church that removes the markings of the world to display the mark of the Lamb. 
Now, there's a couple things that I think we should cover from the text that might help us understand the context of today's message. Might understand the purpose of John's writing to the church. I think we need to highlight two things. Being sealed or marked, and then the tribulation. In the church over the years, there's been a lot of expectations set for this mark of the beast, right? What is it? When will it come? Who will bring it? For those of you that didn't grow up in the church, you may not know this, but people have taken this, this guessing game pretty far, this looking for the mark of the beast. I grew up in the 90s. It, I kind of grew up on the tail end of this content overload that was kind of from the 70s through the 90s of end times materials, whether it be books, whether it be movies. It was kind of this apocalyptic entertainment, if you would. It was all of this material based on the mark of the beast. It would often be seen in movies as, as like a barcode on your forehead or on your wrist that you would receive during this tribulation period. If you didn't have the barcode, I guess like you couldn't get gas or buy SpaghettiOs or something. I don't really remember exactly what it was. But that, that meant that you were marked by the beast. I guess the purpose of those materials, at least how I saw it as a kid and as a teenager, was kind of to like literally scare the hell out of us, like scare us out of hell into heaven. I think that was kind of the goal. And it worked. <laughs> Mission accomplished, the, the, the satanic panic of that time, it was an attempt, it was an earnest attempt to lead people to the love and hope of Jesus, right? But it was through fear. And oftentimes, at least in my experience and in my conversations with others that kind of grew up alongside me, it didn't really lead us to the hope of Jesus like people would have thought. It just often kind of kept our eyes on that fear, on that expectation, on that, on that anxiety of what was going to happen. And it led to a lot of church hurt. And it led me to sit at home before there were cell phones, and when my parents would be late from work, be like, so are they late for work, or did they get raptured? Like, do I need to start, like, foraging? Like, wha what, what do I do? Like, is that Power Ranger tattoo that I got the other day? Like, is that the mark of the beast? Am I marked now? Like, what do I... It can be very, very confusing, right? But here's the reality about the, the mark of the beast. It is everywhere. Sorry to say it, but it's everywhere. Anything in the world today that goes counter to what Jesus is trying to do as he's bringing about that restoration, as he's making all things new, those are anti-Christ, those powers, those movements, those systemic issues in society, those are the powers of evil. Those are anti-Christ movements. Those are marked with the beast. Does that make any sense? Does that, are we tracking? I hope we're tracking. So let's, let's shift our attention away from the mark of the beast into what we see in the text in Revelation as being marked by the Lamb. Because in verse 3 of our text, it mentions that the servants of God are to be marked with a seal on their foreheads. So not marked with evil, but they're actually to be sealed by God, right? So this imagery can also be found in the Old Testament. It can be found in Deuteronomy 6. 
So the people of God, the Israelites, they're given specific instructions on how they are to live as a holy people. They're supposed to be separate from the powers of the world. And then once they're given these instructions, once they adopt these instructions, God's people get this marking that's found in verse 5 of Deuteronomy. It says this. This text is familiar because Jesus quotes this text as well. It says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So in summary, if we want to protect ourselves or if we want to fight against those marks of the beast, we're actually to do that by being a public witness of being marked by the Lamb. Marked on our hands, on our heads, and on our homes with this love of God. So on our hands, it's this picture of, of all of our actions being marked by the love of God, the things that we do. Our foreheads, which we also find in Scripture, is we are to be a reflection of the love of God. When we see ourselves, we see the love of God. When others see me, they're to see the love of God. And then on our door frames. So our door frames is our community, our homes. Is our home, is our family marked by this love of God? Is our church marked by this love of God? Is our community, is our schools, is the environment that we live in marked by the love of God? See, it's not just like getting a stamp on your hand to get admission into like the theme park or into the club. It's not, it's not showing off something like, I've, I've been marked, I've been sealed. Ooh, what's your marking? Are you marked by the beast or by the lamb? Okay, good. You're part of my team now. That's not what this is. This is, this is living our lives in a way that people see the love of God in our lives. And honestly, if you look at like the decline of the modern Western church, this is something to think about. Like, are, are we as a church so worried about getting into the right club or staying out of the wrong club that we've become more club-like instead of Christ-like? Have we become more self-centered about saving myself than we are Christ-centered, living out the mission of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? So now to the other word, tribulation. It's mentioned in verse 13. I can have it come up on the screen again. It says, Then when one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And then he said, the elder says this, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now again, thanks to, thanks to some Hollywood theology, we struggle with the word tribulation. We often think of tribulation as this point in time where destruction and judgment just rain down on earth after we're already in heaven, after we're already gone. And this, again, goes back to my experiences. There's a lot of stories that had been passed down and expanded on that were built on this isolated view of tribulation. 
I remember there was a movie, I think it was like made in the 70s. It was the tribulation that it had talked about was basically like, this is not a joke. So there was like a bunch of hippies, because it was the 70s, so hippies were the bad guys, I guess. So then they would rat out the Christians, those who would like profess to follow Jesus, and then they would rat them out, expose that they didn't have the mark of the beast, and like the end of the movie, all of the Christians were then executed by the hippies, which I know is like, grab your popcorn, kids, let's all gather around and watch a movie, a bunch of, a bunch of people get executed. But that, that's the reality, that when you, when you take the text to its furthest extent and then you add some other things, you add some cultural baggage, you get these pictures of tribulation that's not really what we're talking about in Revelation 7. It lessens the impact of what John is really trying to say to us, the church. And it leads many people who are lost to just seeing this picture of a vengeful and destructive Christianity, an apocalyptic view of a loving God. From John's perspective, God's people don't don't really escape tribulation. Instead, the text says that as they remained faithful through the tribulation, through the hardships, through the challenges, through the persecution, those that remained faithful were the ones that were washed clean, the ones that washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So if we leave behind some of the cultural imagery, what does that really mean then for us here today? Again, let's, let's go back a little bit to the Old Testament. Let's go to the Exodus story, when, when Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt. God freed the people from bondage, but they didn't just instantly go from captivity to like utopian reality, right? They didn't just go out of Egypt and then everything was perfect, right? There was what? There was the wilderness. There was that wilderness period. See, they needed to journey through the wilderness, through their tribulation, for them to purify themselves of the markings of Egypt. They had to be sealed as the people of God. See, Egypt didn't push them into the wilderness. It was actually their love of Egypt that kept them in the wilderness. They needed to go through that tribulation period to wash those markings away, so that way they could actually live as marked people of God. Now, fortunately for us today, we have Jesus. We have that spotless lamb that it talks about in Revelation. He is the one that purifies us. He is the one that gives us that mark. But this, again, this doesn't mean that we don't have those times of tribulation. This actually means that this is an opportunity for us to reject those temptations to embrace Christ-like markings and reject the Antichrist markings that are all around the world around us. For us to be able to reject and dismantle those Antichrist markings, we need to know and understand what those markings of the Lamb are, how we are to actually live in them, embrace them. So what are the markings that we see the markings of the Lamb. There are five markings for the church found in Revelation. Worship, discernment, repentance, embodiment, and hope. Now we've already covered worship in last week's message, so let's just go straight to discernment. 
Let's be, let's be honest with ourselves. How often in life do we find ourselves on autopilot? Like, just take driving, for instance. Like, if, if you're driving to work and back the same place every day for year, year after year after year after year, how often can you drive there and make it back and not even really think about how you got there? At, at some point, you're just like, oh, I'm there. I, I didn't even realize that I was still driving. Like, you just kind of can space out as you drive. Or how often are our decisions influenced, maybe even without us realizing it, based on family, based on traditions, like, I drive a Chevy because my dad drives a Chevy, because his dad drives a Chevy, and so on and so forth. Or my neighbor got a pool, so I got a pool, because then his neighbor got a pool. It's, you kind of just go with the flow, right? Well, discernment means that you don't, as a follower of Jesus, just go with the flow. Especially when you live in this culture that is counter to being marked by the Lamb. Spiritual discernment it's this idea that we often talk about of being in the world but not of it, right? The way of Christ, the way that he calls us to live, is one that refuses to withdraw from the world. We don't just get to escape, press the eject button on the world, but we're called to live in the world, but not allow it to mark us, not allow it to cover the markings that we have from Christ. So discernment is how we find a way to love the world as Jesus loved, while at the same time being able to reject those patterns. When I think of discernment, I think of Daniel. Daniel's a biblical example of both faithfulness and discernment. Because he had a genuine love and respect for the people that he was serving under. Those that had kind of helped him in the empire. Those who had held him in the empire. And he was prosperous. He was successful. But once there was that line, once there was that fork in the road where he had the choice of worshiping God, keeping God at the center of his worship, and then choosing the prosperity of the empire, choosing the comforts of the empire, he remained faithful. He used that discernment to remain faithful. So what grants us access to this kind of discernment? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and then even the people of God. See, the influences of your life are going to lead you to the decisions that you make. So if your influences are Christ-like, your discernment leans Christ-likeness. If your influences are not, you're going to slowly drift, and your discernment, your autopilot is going to drift you away from Christ. We need to embrace discernment as a church if we're going to inhabit an empire, if we're going to live in the shadow of the beast and avoid participating in the evils of its idolatry. We have an opportunity to bear witness to a different kingdom completely, the kingdom of God, as we work for the good of the world, just like Daniel, as we work towards restoration, Now, when we find ourselves in times when we've lacked discernment and it's led to wrongdoing, that's when we get to the second marking of the church, which is repentance. Repentance is hard. It's so hard. But it's so important as people of God. If I steal someone's car, they don't get to drive away on my apology. 
That's amazing. <laughs> Does my apology mean anything if I don't give them their car back? Do I get to just say, like, sorry, but this is mine now? Like, my son, if my son, if my son just jumps on top of my, well, when my son jumps on my daughter and stays on her, I don't just go, hey, Isla, or hey, Parker, say sorry. Say sorry to your sister as she suffocates. No, I say get off of her. Like, you gotta, you gotta repent. You gotta get off of her. Sorry's not good enough. Don't do that. But how often do we fall short of actually repenting? Like, yeah, we can say sorry, but like, do something about it, right? Make it right. Make it new. We're not really in the sorry business as the church. We're supposed to be in the repentance business. We're supposed to be making all things new. The call for repentance and revelation is pointed smack dab at the church. Like five of the seven churches that are in Revelation are all being called out for their lack of repentance, for their lack of righting their own wrongs. So what happens when the church neglects our call to repent? Our hearts become hardened. Our fruit becomes rotten. And our witness becomes lifeless. So in what ways have, have we as the church throughout the course of history, neglected to repent in ways that have hurt our witness? Racism has had its place in the church. Sexism has had its place in the church. Tribalism has had its place in the church. Materialism has had its place in the church. All of these things have hurt the witness. All of these markings of the beast have been worn proudly by the church throughout history. And what it's done is it's not only hurt the witness of our church, but it's hurt the people that we're here to serve. It's hurt the people that are made in the image of God that we are called to love. Like I said, repentance is hard. It's, it's a level of selflessness and vulnerability that's just often faded away in society and even in the church. We just just can't even imagine a world of people that live selflessly, that are so quick to right the wrongs that have happened that eventually maybe those wrongs don't happen anymore. We can't even picture that. In Scripture, we have a little snapshot of that, and it's in a man named Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was somebody that took advantage of his position. He took advantage of his his opportunity really to extract wealth from people that he was responsible for. He was a crook. He was a grifter. But when he was exposed to the light of Christ, when he was given forgiveness, he didn't just say like, well, thanks for the ticket to heaven, Jesus. He also didn't just say, hey, sorry folks that I took all your money and then just get out of Dodge. What did he do? He gave back four times what he had stolen. He had given away half of everything that he owned. He went above and beyond to right that wrong. He made sure that people weren't hurt by what was done in his past life. That's how you wash away the marking of the beast, right? You don't get to take advantage of the like, benefits of the beast and then leave to be marked by the lamb. 
there's wrongs that need to be made right. What kind of a, what kind of a world would we live in today if that was repentance? If every time somebody wronged someone, they went above and beyond to make it right, how amazing would be, that be? That's the kingdom of God. It's our responsibility to model that. But when we do that, it, it takes embodiment, which is the next marking. It's simple. We have to just continually, time and time again, ask, are we practicing what we preach? Do we ask of God or ask of people something that we're not willing to do ourselves? Are we standing outside of the burning house just going, well, whose fault was this that this house is on fire? I bet it was this person's fault. I bet it's their fault that this house is on fire. Or quick, somebody should do something about this fire. Or, well, what are you going to do? house is on fire. All the while you're like holding a fire extinguisher, just like, I don't know what to do. That's just, I guess the house is going to burn down. We don't get to just hold the fire extinguisher. And the reality is, and the hurtful reality is, in some of my experiences, is that oftentimes we're holding the match. We started the fire, and then we just go, well, we started the fire, I guess it burns. The book of Revelation, it's not this book to, to be dissected, to be afraid of. It's, it's really a book to be lived out, just like all of Scripture. It's a book to, to model how we look at life. It's a book written by a man in exile, John, who truly hoped for a community of restoration. But he knew that that community was going to have to exist within an empire of destruction, who pledged allegiance like we talked about last week, to Christ alone. A community of life among a culture of death. A community of equity and inclusion that invites all who desire to live in the love of God to repent and worship him. But we can't, we can't imagine that type of community, we can't imagine that culture existing if we just continue to be captivated by the temptations of the world. If we continue to take on the markings of an unjust Society. Restoration, it doesn't happen by accident. Repentance definitely doesn't happen by accident. Embodiment is worship, it's discernment, it's repentance in action. It's a life of holy activity that's marked by the Lamb. It's like James 4.17 says, it's, it's knowing what is right and then doing it. Because if you know what's right and don't do it, it's sin for the church. It's sin for the people of God. But that's, that's often harder to do what's right than to avoid doing what's wrong, right? It's, it's kind of easy to build a platform on not doing what's wrong. But when we talk about what Jesus wants to do, how he wants to restore all things, the, the things that we need to do, the rights that we need to do, that's often a lot more difficult than just avoiding, to what, avoiding what we get to determine is wrong. All of that should lead to hope. If our messaging is flooded with words of abandonment 
words of judgment, words of damnation for the world, is that really displaying hope? Scripture talks so much about hope. Here's why this matters to me personally. I've spent 32 years in the church. My whole entire life was in the church. That being said, I did not spend 32 years in a place of hope, in a community of hope. I did not spend 32 years of my life marked as a person of hope. It matters. A lack of discernment, a lack of repentance or embodiment, when we lack these markings, our faith is not nurtured. Our experiences aren't marked by the Lamb. And our hope fades. And when our hope fades, you better believe that the world's hope is going to fade. Because we have the hope. Our response to the conditions of the world need to be covered in hope. How can the church believe in the miracles of Scripture, believe that the dead were raised, believe that Jesus is making all things new, display such a fragile hope? A hope that seems to be based on an election or on the economy, on any kind of moment of division or discomfort. If our hope is destroyed because of one of these things, we're allowing the, the wilderness period, that tribulation period for the church, to destroy our hope. When we believe the lies that someone or something is irredeemable, when we, when we live as though our actions don't really make a difference, can't make a difference, when we act as though the will of God is just too fragile and too weak for us to remain faithful, we are not living as a church of hope. When we misread texts like Revelation, we lose sight of our opportunity to be a people of hope. We can be a people of hope. Hope can come bursting out of our lives like the light of Christ. But we need to think about what it looks like to be washed of those marks of the beast so we can be sealed by those markings of the Lamb. Together as one community of one faith. At this time, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I know the elephant in the room is like the baptismal, but like this is for the second service. <laughs> We're not just going to pretend to baptize people. But um, so yeah, stick around for the second service. Maybe my sermon will be different and then you get to watch people get baptized. But just let's just take time to ask ourselves, are we more marked by the beast or are we more marked by the lamb? I know that's a heavy question, but have we really washed away the stains of the world? Are we really revealing the seal of our Savior, that hope? There's, there's great imagery in something like baptism. There really is. Baptism is that outward expression of the inward grace that is changing our lives. It's that visual of dying to ourselves, being washed. So when we come out, when we experience that new birth, that new life in Christ, we're now clean and cleansed and able to fully reveal the markings that God has put on us from the very beginning. We still will have wilderness. 
We still will have those times of tribulation, but revelation reveals an opportunity for us, for the church, to be refined, to be cleansed, and to be made whole, to be a shining witness of the spotless lamb. So we're going to sing together before I close. pieces broken and scattered in mercy gathered mended and whole empty handed but not forsaken I've been set free I've been set free oh amazing grace sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, I can see you So take this heart, Lord, I'll be your vessel, the world to see, your life in me, oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, oh, I once was lost.
know that sometimes these messages feel like a lot, right? They feel like heavy. They feel like the bar is set really high. But I wanted to read the last couple verses of chapter 7 again. Because this is what we want to see. It says this, it says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture of redemption at this throne that's where we find hope. That hope doesn't get broken based on outside circumstances, fearful consequences. It's the church, it's us being the children of God, accepting and embracing our call to live like that, to live with that posture of worship today, to be a people of love, grace, hope, a posture of worship that allows us to live sacrificially because we know where our home is. We know who we belong to, to God and to each other. And that marking, that marking of the lamb is forever. So we're, we have difficulties that I know people in this building right now are going through. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of unknown. There's a sense of hurt and pain and fear and anger. We have the opportunity to be hope in that. We have an opportunity to be here and receive hope from each other. Let's pray together. Lord God, we just ask that you would just continue to bless us. Bless us with your continued possession of our lives. We ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Continue to cover us. Continue to go before us. Continue to wipe those tears from our eyes. Give us what we need. We also ask, Lord, that you would reveal if there are any of those markings of the beast that are still visible to the world around us, still visible to our brothers and sisters. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we just ask that you would cleanse us again. Wash our robes white. So we can truly be, be a revelation of your glory. Be a reflection of your peace. A revelation of the eternal hope that we can have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you. Like I said, if you want to see a baptism, stick around for another couple hours. Any takers? All right. Have a great week.